This is Dacre Stoker, great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker. You're listening to The Wicked Library. Warning. The Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Dear Cousin Gavin. I never knew Grandpa Kenny and Grandma Lida. My mama left home before I was ever born. She kept her people in the rearview mirror and had left no forwarding address. Mama's people were the folks at Miller's Hollow. Never ever mom and dad. Everything would have been different if it hadn't been for Grandma Lida's cousin Gavin. Might have been real different for the folks at Miller's Hollow people I'd never know, but I wanted to know them, know who they'd been, what they were like, they were family, all my friends had grandpas and grandmas, dad's parents died young and I never knew them either, I was missing out by never knowing the family, and maybe some aunts and uncles and cousins along the way, I just knew it, ever since I was little, I've been nagging my daddy for stories about this missing-in-action family. Mama just got mad, so I stopped asking her. We didn't even have a single snapshot of any of them. That was just plain weird the way I saw it. One night, just a few days past my 16th birthday, Mama ran into the house from the car, crying, leaving groceries on the front lawn. She'd gone into her room and locked the door. Daddy ran outside, but came back in after just a couple minutes and locked the front door and told me to go to my room and do the same. A couple hours later, Daddy knocked on my door. He told me it was time for me to hear the story that I've been dying to hear. The story of Grandpa Kenny and Grandma Lida and the story of Cousin Gavin. Mostly, though, He said it was the story of Gavin and his stump water moonshine and how it pretty much changed everything in Miller's Hollow back in 1973 and pretty much everything thereafter. <laughs> Life 
life had been like it always was in the hollow before the doings of summer 73. My mama's mom, Elida, and her parents lived like everybody else around there. She was in her freshman year at Lakefield High School, and her mama worked at Bev's Quick Mart. Like most of the men in the hollow, her daddy worked at the Prescott Mines, like his daddy before him did. That year, 1973, the big statewide budget cut shut down the East Fulton Psychiatric Hospital. That's when Lida's cousin Gavin came to live with him. He'd been a guest at East Fulton ever since his parents had died in a car wreck some years before. Lida's Aunt Lou and Uncle Frank had kept their strange boy at home, under lock and key, so to speak. Gavin had never really been right for school, and he'd never spoken a single word since the day he was born. It wasn't like he was violent or anything. Not really. He just didn't know how things worked and that small things were fragile, especially living things. Lou and Frank never kept pets, and any strays were always run off before Gavin had a chance to accidentally do any harm. When he was just 14 years old, the same age as Lida herself, Gavin's parents had died in an accident when their car went off the Hattie's Point Bridge into the river during flood season. Lida wrote in her diary how she had a secret that made her cry herself to sleep every night. She hadn't even told Sally Comstock when she came over to interview the family for a few kind words about the deceased for the church page of the Sunday paper. What Lida hadn't wanted anyone to know was what she'd heard her Uncle Frank swear he was going to do. He said he was going to run their car off Hattie's Point into the water with him and Lou and Gavin in it to save everybody in the hollow from what was sure to come having the boy underfoot and hanging around normal people. Frank had spat on the floor and slammed his fist on the table, even though he was talking about his own son. And Aunt Lou had started bawling. When Lou and Frank finally did go off the bridge into the river, Gavin had been in the car too, of course. Everybody said it was a true miracle of the Lord God Almighty that the boy survived and how happy Lida must be to have her own dear cousin home safe with her and the family this strange silent boy who never said a word but who had a liking for doing things that set other people on edge like the way he'd touch himself down there and start grunting and drooling and bouncing up and down whenever he'd start in on that Lida's mama would lock him in his room and only let him out the next morning she also kept him locked in his room while the rest of them were at work and school Lada's father put bars on Gavin's window so he couldn't get out and locked him in at night so they didn't have to listen to him rooting around in the house when they couldn't keep an eye on him. Things went on like this for a few months before Lada's daddy packed up and cleared out after work one day. He just couldn't handle it anymore, but he wasn't man enough to stick around and help his wife and daughter with the burden. Within a month, Lida's mama hung herself from the oak tree in the backyard with a clothesline. Lida was almost past her wit's end when things slid even further into the red zone. Not a month after her mother's funeral, there was a horrible storm of mythic proportions. Lightning and thunder slammed the hollow for three days, 
while the winds and rain tore up the trees and even blew out a couple of Lida's windows. She'd listen to Gavin wailing half the night, and then, somewhere around dawn, he'd finally settled down. Lida fell asleep for a while, and when she woke up, the storm had broken. She made some breakfast for the two of them, but she found the boys' room empty and the doorframe busted out and splinters all over the floor. Lida searched everywhere, but could find no sign of her cousin. She'd begun to scour the woods up the hill and back of the house when she came upon a tree stump burned off by lightning, still smoking and full of rainwater. There was Gavin, half-naked and shoving handfuls of muck and leaves into the stump and stirring it with a burnt twig. Grabbing hold of him, Lida looked into the stump and saw leaves, mushrooms floating, a bunch of slugs bobbing on the surface, and the half-eaten body of a raven, half-submerged in the bloody water. She shuddered and tried to pull the boy away, recoiling when she saw the slugs on his arms. She almost puked when he pulled the icky things off his skin and sat there grinning and hooting and stuffing them into his mouth. Then he ripped himself free of her grasp and started churning up that mess in the stump again. Lida managed to get Gavin back to the house, but there was no point in putting him in his room with the door frame busted out, so she locked him in the cellar. Then she got dressed and headed off to school. When she got home, she was mortified to find Gavin had busted through the cellar door too and was long gone. She went right back up the hill to where she knew she'd find him. There he was, sitting beside the stump again, this time sucking water and God knows what else out of a hole on the side of the thing. There were more toadstools floating in the mess, along with some flowers and beetles and a clogged knot of something she couldn't quite make out and decided she didn't want to. Gavin was just sitting there, grinning and rolling his eyes like a drunkard. She managed to stumble him back to the house, got him fed and washed up, and then barricaded in the bathroom. Lida sat on the back porch and started crying. She just didn't know what to do with the boy. He was family. She was not going to turn him into wherever they put people like him. Besides, those places were all shut down now, so she couldn't even if she wanted to. He was big now and taller than her, too, and even though they'd always said he was harmless and would never hurt anybody, Lida was shit scared of him. Probably it was because he never talked and she had no idea what was going on inside of him. The next night when Lida got home from school, Gavin had broken free again. She found him back up on the hill, rolling in the grass, drunk as a skunk on whatever crazy mash he'd cooked up in that lightning stump still is. But he seemed happy, and he didn't put up a fuss when she herded him back to the house. The next morning, she locked him in the bathroom again, but not before tying him down. When she got back that afternoon, she wasn't that surprised to find he'd gotten out again. She'd found him back up at that stump water still of his. But this time, Lida gasped in shock. In Gavin's arms was a baby the neighbor's child, little Katie Fargo. What gave Lida the chills was the way he was sucking on the baby's fingers like they were teats, 
with his eyes closed and a creepy cooing, gurgling sound coming out of his mouth. Katie Fargo was giggling and kicking her legs with delight, even though Gavin had poured that mucky crap water all over her little pudgy body. He didn't resist when Lida pulled the child out of his arms and ran off with her toward the Fargo place. Eddie Fargo was on the phone to the deputy when she arrived, and his wife, Shauna, was in a screaming hysterics. Lida said she'd found the child crawling near their woodpile. Then she'd hurried on out of there before they had time to think and ask any questions. She found Gavin still sitting beside the blackened stump, sucking that icky water out of a hole on the side of it. He was picking slugs and leeches off himself, popping them with his teeth like chocolate cherries, the sticky blood streaming red from his lips and dripping off his chin. Lida vowed that tomorrow, as soon as she got home from school, she was going straight over to Erickson's hardware for a good long length of case-hardened steel chain and a dog collar with a lock on it. That was the best she could come up with in the way of a plan for now. The next morning, Lida brought Gavin his breakfast. Before she even opened the door to the bathroom, she paused and listened. The boy was singing. It was a high-pitched melodic tune that was just the most god-awful thing she'd ever heard. Gavin, who'd never spoken a single word in his whole life, was singing. She couldn't make out any of the words, so she eased open the door and peered in. He was lying in the bathtub, his head on the pillow she'd brought for him, just lying there, one leg crossed over the other, singing and waving his right hand in the air like he was leading an orchestra. Lida smiled, part happy but mostly sad through her tears. She went in and set his plate where he could reach it, and then she went out and closed the door as Gavin resumed his aria. When she got home that afternoon, she didn't even bother going into the house. She knew Gavin wasn't going to be there. Sure enough, making her way through the trees, she heard his happy voice singing his strange song. But she stopped short and groaned when she saw him sitting there with Katie Fargo on his lap again. She started toward them, scolding the boy. Then she heard the screaming. It was coming from... Katie and her mama Shauna and was echoed by roars of animal rage from the baby's father as he barreled through the trees toward them. Lida stopped in her tracks before stumbling forward and muttering an incoherent sob. Shauna stood not five feet from Gavin and her child vomiting. There were leeches on Katie's arms and face on her fat little legs and Gavin was pulling him off and plopping him into his mouth with loud sucking sound. Then Lida saw all the blood on Katie's arms and legs and face and the other plump red morsels Gavin was shoving into his grinning mouth as he chewed and tried to keep on with his singing. Katie had stopped screaming. She was long past that now. Lida watched in horror as Gavin shoved the baby off his lap into the mud. She just laid there, her neck twisted 
at a sickening angle. Gladys saw a lot more blood when Eddie Fargo raised his shotgun and emptied both barrels into her cousin's shoulder. The blast knocked Gavin backwards at least five feet into the mud. Then Lida passed out and knew no more for a good long while. When she came to, she was in the hospital. In the bed next to her was Gavin, hooked up to a bunch of wires and tubes and machines, like some kind of Frankenstein. A few minutes later, the police came to talk to her. Preliminary questions about whether she'd been actively involved in the incident, as they called it, or not. Lida knew better. What she witnessed wasn't any incident. It was a murder. The brutal butchering of an innocent child. A baby not six months old by a monster who was her own flesh and blood kin. Why didn't you drown instead of Aunt Lou, Uncle Frank? She growled, looking at him, lying there, trussed up on life support. Why didn't Eddie's bullet finish you off, you freak? She screamed through her choked sobs. He stirred in his sleep and started in on that infernal singing that made no sense, but now made Lida's flesh crawl. She had to put down the urge to get out of bed and go smother him with a pillow and put an end to his vile existence. After that, things happened pretty quickly. There was the trial a hideous nightmare of a trial that was hustled through the system just weeks after Gavin had been declared fit to stand before the court. There were all the to-be-expected testimonies from the Fargos on how they'd found their baby Katie in the clutches of this half-wit neighbor, murdered and worse before their very eyes. There'd been the testimony by the police and the first responders on the scene. None of that had prepared Lida for the blown-up pictures in full-color of the victim of Katie Fargo's tiny body half eaten and covered in leaves and blood on Gavin's lap as he sucked down his leech water shine and crooned his demented lullaby in her little dead ear all the while grinning and giggling to himself then there was the other picture the one taken after Lida was taken away in the ambulance there was Gavin sitting in the mud grinning and bleeding from the gunshot wounds in his shoulder and vomiting blood and great red gushes down the front of his shirt trying to shove it back into his mouth with his fingers Lida had gagged at the sight and the court matron half carried her to the bathroom where she puked her guts out then Lida collapsed on the floor and ended up back in the hospital they'd spared her any further exposure to the public and the press The trial ended the way murder trials usually do in a county where people believe evil is a man's willful misdoing and put little stock in reasons of insanity and diminished capacity. As expected, the public defender for Gavin rambled through a litany of predictable excuses, like the boy's state of mind and the startling change that had come over him after the big lightning storm, and how he probably had some lingering effects from mushrooms or leeches and beetles and whatever else he was sucking out of that stump water still his. None of that mattered to anybody in the vicinity of Miller's Hollow. 
least of all to Eddie and Shauna Fargo and Lida. Gavin was condemned and sentenced to hang for his crimes and given a reduced sentence aforehand, meaning they'd fast-tracked him to meet the gallows without a lengthy stay in jail at the county taxpayer's expense. On the morning of August 15, 1973, Gavin Wendover Wilcox took his last meal of eggs, ham, and coffee, and then went, without benefit of counsel or clergy, to meet his maker, without a word besides the song he'd been singing since that night. Three days later, Lida Erlene Wilcox and that handsome boyfriend of hers, Kenny Orton, set off for parts unknown and undeclared, leaving the house in Miller's Hollow and all that was inside it for anybody who wanted it. Lida and Kenny got married somewhere along the way. Before too much time had passed, they welcomed my mama into the world. Lida never forgot the events of summer 1973, of course, but she'd made her peace with the past as best she could and found happiness in her husband and her new baby girl, Nora, my mama. One night, when Nora was about a year old, Lida was driving home with a load of groceries when a man stepped off the curb right in front of her. She'd slammed on her brakes and missed hitting him by inches. The man had turned around and grinned at her, and then he'd run off. Lida could have sworn it was Gavin, which was, strictly speaking, not even possible since he was long dead and buried in the ground. She pulled over to the curb and just sat there, shaking, telling herself she was seeing things. When she got home, she did her best to put the whole thing out of her mind and started to fix dinner. Kenny walked in the door a few minutes later, pleased as a pickle, as he told Lida he'd gotten a raise. That was the end of any thoughts of Lida's past. The next morning, Lida woke up to the sound of Nora, laughing and giggling in her crib. She went into the baby's room, expecting to see Kenny playing with her as he always did each morning before work. But it was late, and he was already gone. Lida changed her daughter's diaper and went to get her bottle. When she came back, she heard Nora singing. Lida almost gagged when she made out a few notes of what sounded like that craziness Gavin used to sing during his final days leading up to the incident. Lada shook her head, thinking she was imagining things again, as she scooped little Nora up in her arms, and she was just jabbering her happy baby sounds. No singing. Nothing to worry about. Besides, Gavin was rotted in the dirt. She knew that for a fact. The next day, when Kenny got home, he was in a terrible mood. He ate dinner without saying more than a few words and then retired to the TV with a beer. Lida went up and curled up next to him after she'd put the baby down for the night, but he wouldn't say what was bothering him. Long after they went to bed, Lida lay awake, knowing something was wrong with her man. Knowing he laid there in the dark next to her with his eyes open and staring at the ceiling. She got up later to get the baby's bottle when she heard her fussing. When she came back to bed, Kenny turned on the light and looked at her. What? she asked. You notice anybody hanging around outside today? He asked in that low mumble he used when he was grappling with something uneasy. No, did you? 
she'd hissed. Yeah, some creeper in the bushes between the houses, but... He'd broken off with a shrug and a wince, and then just shook his head. But what? Lida cried. Kenny, you're scaring me. Her husband asked her if she was sure she hadn't seen anybody. She hadn't. Then she remembered the man who stepped out in front of her, and she went all cold inside. The crazy thing is, Kenny had continued, he looked just like Gavin, exactly like he did before he, you know, before they hanged him. Looked exactly like him, Lida. You sure, sure as shit, that evil fucker's dead? Lida cried out and buried her tears in her husband's shoulder and told him about the man she'd seen on the road. The next day, Lida called the courthouse in Miller's Hollow. Yes, Gavin Wilcox was hung by the neck until dead, the voice in the hollow said. He was pronounced on August 15, 1973, at 7.13 a.m. by Dr. Jason Matthew Higgs of the county coroner's office. He was removed to Johnson's funeral home where he was prepared at minimal expense and procedure for the burial he duly deserved at Sacred Heart Cemetery on August 17, 1973 at 11 a.m. before no witnesses besides staff and employees of Sacred Heart and the previously mentioned Dr. Higgs, the woman droned on robotically. No mistakes or errors possible in the public record. The deceased in question was surely and for all time dead and interred, never to rise again, the woman assured her, and then hung up without a goodbye or an Anything else I can do for you today, ma'am? None of this did anything to ease Kenny and Lida's sense of dread when they saw the pure evil likeness of Lida's dead cousin Gavin Wilcox standing outside the church the following Sunday, where they'd gone just to be on the comfortable side of damnation. Of course, the likeness had disappeared when Kenny had taken off after him, just like he disappeared when Lida found him looking in the kitchen window after breakfast the next morning. No amount of assurances by the woman in Miller's Hollow could dispel the shock and disgust Kenny and Lida felt when they picked the baby up from her crib that night and found her blanket soaking wet and sticky with the stinking reek of mushrooms, rotted leaves, and foul water. It was decided then and there that rays or no rays unholy apparition or crazy stalker, Kenny and Lida were pulling up stakes and moving far away. They jumped five states in as many days and sat down in Wichita, Kansas. When Nora was about two, Lida heard her daughter singing a tune that set her blood to ice. When she'd asked her daughter where she'd heard the tune, she said, "'That man in the TV!' Lida breathed a sigh of relief. The next day, she was carrying her daughter to the car when Nora started laughing and singing that bone-chilling tune again, yelling, Look, Mommy, look! The man in the TV! Lida turned just in time to see the doppelganger of Gavin Wilcox riding past them on an old rusted bicycle. The man grinned and waved, and Lida ran with her daughter in her arms to her car drove straight to Kenny's work. The next day, they packed up and pulled out for California. They'd been there a little over a year when Nora started talking to her invisible friend, a man who never said a word but sang her a song over and over. 
The man had tried to get Nora to drink from an old wooden bucket he carried, but it smelled bad and had bugs floating in it, so she'd refused. Lida and Kenny were horrified. They asked their daughter where she'd met this man. In the backyard, the girl had said, and at school, and late at night in her bedroom, and even in the bathroom when he'd put icky things in her bath water. Lida and Kenny packed up and moved again, and again, and again, whenever the singing Gavin man, or the apparition, appeared. They moved frequently all through Mama's childhood and teenaged years, whenever the singing Gavin man appeared in Nora's room at night, or taunted Kenny and Lada on the streets from windows near their house and from passing buses and cars and trucks, always with that maddening grin and that incessant, horrible, mindless singing. When Nora left for college, the visitation stopped completely. No more sightings. No Gavin showing up in the middle of the night in her room. No trying to force her to drink from his bucket that stank of rotted growing things. It was the end of it. Lida and Kenny moved back to Miller's Hollow to make their peace or some such unfathomable reason. Her mom cut ties with her parents because of it and put it all behind her, as Lida herself had done before her. Mama finished college and got a good job. Then came a series of promotions, a few boyfriends, and the man who would be my father came on the scene and wiped the floor with the competition and swept Mama off her feet. In the fullness of time, I joined the clan. When I was old enough to start wondering, I started asking about Mama's people. I wanted to know why I didn't have a grandpa and grandma from the Wilcox side of the family, but no one would ever say a word about them. And now, I finally knew why. Or, so I thought. On that night when Mama had run into the house, all tears and hysterics, Daddy had decided it was time for me to hear the story. When he was finished, I just sat there, thinking, trying to process it all. Thanks for telling me, Dad. I think, I said, wrapping my arms around myself the way I do when it's cold or I'm figuring things out. So I guess you thought I was finally grown up enough to, you know, to handle it? I asked, sitting up straight and looking at him in case there might be more to tell. Yes, that of course, honey, but also because when I got up to go to the bathroom last night, I could have sworn I heard Gavin's song coming out of your room. But then it just stopped all of a sudden, and I heard you powering down your computer, so I figured it was just some of that weird music of yours. Yeah, whatever, I said, nodding and smiling at him. Right, my father continued. But then tonight, what set your mother off was she saw somebody looking in the window. When I went outside, I just couldn't believe it. It it was him. It was Gavin. I switched on the porch light, but he was gone. But it was him. As we sat there lost in thought, Mom appeared in my doorway, her eyes wild and her hand over her mouth. He's... he's out there, she hissed, staring at my dad and glancing at me. It's okay, Mom, I know. I know all about it, I said, trying to seem all grown up and everything. My parents went to bed, although I knew they weren't going to sleep. I turned off the light and lit a candle and just sat there in the cool dark of my room, my sanctuary. 
I had my own ideas about how to make Cousin Gavin go away forever. Tugging at the small, inverted pentagram at my throat, I went over in my mind which of my friends might have the stomach for the kinds of things I'd been thinking about lately. Things I wanted very badly to try on somebody. Like dear Cousin Gavin. This is Victoria Bigglesworth Coles. I hope you're enjoying yourself. I'd be very mad otherwise. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Or am I? <laughs> Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Today's episode featured a story by Aaron Vleck. Dear Cousin Gavin, If you'd like more information on Aaron and her work, please find her on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash A-A-R-O-N dot V-L-E-K. Artwork for today's show was created by Stephen Matico. If you'd like more information on Steve and his work, please visit wideeyedotter.com and follow him on Twitter at S underscore Matico. Today's episode featured a musical score by Nico Vitaze of We Talk of Dreams. You can find him on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams. You can find his website at wetalkofdreams.com. Nico does composition and sound design for video games, movies, and podcasts. He's also the creator of the Reimagined series on YouTube, which is really cool. You should check it out. You can find all that at his website and links to even more stuff. Don't forget to visit our sponsors and friends of the show like Stigmata Studios, HorrorMade.com, ShadowsAtTheDoor.com, Cathedral Sounds, Sanitarium Press, and Rickert and Beagle Books. You can find links to their websites in the show notes for today's episode. Please share the terror. Share the show and help us grow. The best support you can give us is to rate and write a short review of the show in iTunes. Leaving a rating and short review is totally free, and it means a lot to us. You can do that at itunes.thewickedlibrary.com. Don't let the librarian find out that you didn't. Follow us on Twitter at Wicked Library. Find us on Facebook and subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or Google. We're everywhere. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter to get great prizes, bonus content, and more. You can sign up for that at thewickedlibrary.com. And now, Aaron Vleck. So, Aaron, why don't we start with why this was an important story for you? This particular one, I had never done anything, even though I had done some horror, I had never done anything with what I called actually something gross in it or yeah. something monstrous in it, like what happens with the baby and Gavin out in the woods. So it was a very cathartic experience for me because I had to force myself and push myself. And it was very difficult to write that stuff down because I'd never done that. And in the past, when I had written horror, it would be something horrible happens in the midst of velvet and brocade and furs and, you know, all this other kind of glorious thing that, that deleted the impact of the monstrous things that are going on. So it was a big, big experiment for me and also to write something that was more contemporary, something that was more in everyday language, mm-hmm. which was a big hurdle for me as well. So it was um, a, it was a neat experience just trying out so many different new styles of things. And uh, there was another thing that about it that was there were two other things that were about it that were important. 
that tied into my general overall theme and my, you know, if you will, message. And one was uh, the Gavin character. I had a couple of people who read it who asked me, they said, oh, you're just writing about some retarded kid. You know, you're, you're capitalizing off some retarded kid. And I said, you know what? Gavin is not anything like that at all. You don't know what he is. Yeah. At no point do I ever say that there's anything specific about him at all. He's the unknown. You know, he's the complete, mysterious, other kind of character. You know, we have no idea what he is. And I think that that's something that sometimes gets lost in our attempt to explain everything away into some um, mundane or some easy to explain. Oh, it's just that. It's nothing. There's nothing really weird under the bed. It's just a dog, you know, that kind of thing. And the second thing I wanted to do with this one uh, is in the very, very end when uh the narrator pulls out their little pentagram and figures out what they want to do with Cousin Gavin. And I wanted it to be very ambiguous because on the one hand, you could look at it as though the kid is maybe like Cousin Gavin. This kid's been thinking about doing weird things, you know, and this is kind of a troubling, um, you know, recurrence of Mm -hmm. this dark theme in this family. Or you could look at it like, here's a powerful kid who can say, no, you know, I'm putting Cousin Gavin in his place. No, we're not going to have that. So there was this triumphant sort of powerful individual who's going to, who's very comfortable in dealing with people like Gavin. Everyone else in the story, all the way back to the beginning, are terrified, and rightfully so, and, and weirded out and, you know, freaked out by this character. And this one's like, no, no, I, I got this dad, you know, kind of thing. Right. So I, I like the idea of leaving that ambiguous uh, there. For me, my message um, in everything that I write is that there's always a transformation. And even with horror, that horror can transform you into something hideous or something more powerful than you were before if you confront it and, yeah. and move through it and beyond it. And so I think that it was just another opportunity for me to work out and play with that theme as I have in everything I've written, because I've got about 40 stories now in the last year or two, year and a half that uh, well, I've worked with that theme in a lot of different ways and a lot of different settings and different time places. Excellent. Yeah. You know, and I kind of got that too, that there was this, uh, there was like a duality there where you could take it a couple of different ways. Uh, and, and, you know, part of it was the fact that what occurs happens right after this massive thunderstorm and, you know, you, you have a couple of different directions you can go with it. Is it because he's been, you know, uh, poisoning himself with these strange hallucinogenic drugs and, you know, it, it uh, changes the way that he acts? Or is it something that takes over him and, and comes into him at that time? Um, exactly. And, you know, and going along with your theme about, you know, what happens with the narrator, it's almost like this thing keeps coming back and trying to get into someone that it can actually use to do something. And, you yeah. know, it ends up with Gavin initially, and he's limited in terms of what he's able to do. Uh, before yeah. that, maybe he's like the, you know, the gentle giant, and it just doesn't have the the facilities to, uh, you know, do what it wants to do. And it, so it's right. kind of almost like this quasi- attempt at evil. I mean, it's truly obviously evil, but it's it's not calculated evil, which I think is even more terrifying. I think you totally got it. That's exactly what I was seeing. It was like, you know, 
this could be looked at, however the reader wants to look at it. Right. Because we all have our own preferred way. You know, yeah. There was something that, um, you know, to mention the name of the god, Lagodi, there was something that he said in the introduction to one of his books that was like so right on. And he said that, you know, one of the things about, you know, weird fiction is it opens doors. It's not, you're not just reading a story and it's like bada boo, bada bang, it's done. Oh, it was that. But that it opens the door for the reader and the reader is shoved into some bizarre zone. Yeah. Where he can encounter whatever he finds there for himself in however he counts it. It's like throwing open a door and shoving somebody through and say, deal with whatever's out there. I don't even know what it is. Yeah. You know, and I, I liked, I felt that that was one of the things I tried to do with this is that I know what those pieces all are for me. Mm-hmm. But I hope that they are something else for the reader because I don't like to write something and then hammer the reader over the head by telling this is what I meant. Right, exactly. I want it to mean for you what it, what you got out of it. Yeah, it makes it more real that way, too. I mean, a lot of us, all of us, when we come to a story, we bring our own experiences and our own baggage with us. So, you know, a lot of times the interpretation of a story says a lot more about us than it does about the, the writer who wrote it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. So you mentioned that you have done uh, about 40 stories over the course of the last year, which is uh, a lot of work, very busy. Um, What is it that inspires you and keeps you coming back? Because, I mean, I know from writing my own stuff that writing is hard work. So to to write 40 stories in the course of a year, there must be something that keeps pulling you back to it. What is that? Well, I think that uh, I've been writing since I was, I'm obviously an old fart, and I've been writing since I was 10 years old. So there was that initial sense of satisfaction. It's almost, you know, this, there's this pleasure, there's this satisfied kind of like ah, pleasure at writing something that you feel good about, that you feel is complete, that it says and accomplishes what you set out to do. Because if I've written, if I've written 40 stories in the last year, there's eight, there's 40 more. That I, that I started to write and just, I knew they were never going to work out. Yeah. So these are the ones that I felt were a successful. And I think one of the things that keeps me coming back is that I want that satisfaction. I want that pleasure. You know, I want to keep, keep doing that. What keeps me writing, uh, with the eye to being published is I want to make that connection with readers. Mm-hmm. I want to make that connection with someone else. And I see a lot of different styles of, of horror that accomplish a lot of different goals. And one of the things I know I like to see in in movies and film that deal with these topics is that sense of triumphing. I don't mean that that they have a happy ending or that the bad goes away or the bad never existed, but that somehow someone is made more powerful as a result of it. And I think that's what I try to bring to the stuff that I do, you know, for those people that that want that. You know, I think a lot of people read horror and other type of stories, uh, like they read porn, they are habituated in getting off in a certain way, mm-hmm. you know, so therefore they want that same thing every time they read a story. And that's perfectly fine. I mean, God knows. But uh, I'd like to keep seeing the envelope being pushed out in other directions. Yeah, I mean, every story affects us and changes us and transforms us. And, you know, I think that as we change through life, stories mean different things. I can go back and read a story that I read whenever I was 12 and have it mean something completely different to me now as an adult. Or, you know, sometimes it's even, you know, two, three years uh, in between and you're you're almost a completely different person, depending oh, upon absolutely. what happens. You absolutely. Know? Yeah. I mean, and there's some things like I started reading uh I was weaned on Roger Zelazny and Michael Moorcock back in the very, very early 70s. Mm-hmm. 
And I know that when I go back and I read some of that stuff today, I think, you know, that stuff that was so profoundly important and deep and meaningful, I read it now, it's like, oh, my God, you know. Um, at this other, it takes a lot different things this many years later to get me off, so to speak, you know, in these other, in these other trans-dimensional sorts yeah. of ways. And then some things I'll read that I haven't read in 10 years, and I'll think, oh, that was cute, pat, pat, pat on the head. And I read it again. It's like, oh, my God, I didn't get that. I didn't get that. I was too unsophisticated yeah. to have caught all the nuances that were there that yeah. I missed, you know, before. So it's fun to see you know, both ends of your limitations and your, you know, where you've grown. Absolutely. And I know from, uh, from a, an episode of, uh, one of our sister podcasts, the red horse radio with, uh, Dr. John towers, uh, that you're into the occult and, and, uh, chaos magic and, and that sort of thing. So do you, does that play a part in your writing a lot or? Absolutely. I mean, I, uh, I have been um, involved in magical practice since I was about 18. Mm -hmm. I was in the OTO. I was in the Temple of Set, not at the same time. Uh, and I've been uh, working with chaos magic ever since the OTO days. And uh, I think that what happened is I, and I had written a lot of rituals, big um, interactive rituals. That's one of the big things in the Temple of Set is these big Busby Berkeley style rituals that are not just theater, but they're de they're designed to actually challenge the in, the people that participated in unique, sometimes uncomfortable ways. Mm -hmm. And so I had written a lot of those, and I wanted somehow to bring that to short stories. As weird as that may sound, and that's been kind all. of an interesting shakedown cruise because the, the the number of people that want to read a story that I could reach is not the same as the people that might have some bizarre little ritual story kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's been kind of interesting going back and taking some of my themes and bringing them forward into that. Um, because I think that's where it, from the years of magic, it, that's you're certainly no magician is a victim. You know what I mean? It's almost like it, it, you know, you're bragging about the one, you know, the ones that think they got away from you, kind of thing, or or our, however, you know, you know, you look at it. Right. But um, that's why I like the idea that you know, uh, the dark is it, we're all we all get bit by the dark in bad ways, of course. But I like the idea that we have the power to bite the dark back, the dark back in the ass. Right, you know, exactly. The dark has the possible has the capacity to make us change and morph. That's why I say, you know, the idea that you encountered the dark at midnight and when you looked in the mirror the next morning, you were a god or you were a demon mm -hmm. or some mixture of the of the two. And I think that that's what magical practice for people that are really doing it on a serious level. That's what they're that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to transform into something unique. Right. And I think that what I enjoyed about that podcast that I listened to uh, with the other fellow was him saying about chaos magic, that he was saying he doesn't call himself, you know, a chaos magician, you know, you, that you grow and transcend beyond this. And I'm not saying, Oh, you know, I'm giving you this label or I'm, I'm identifying this, you mm -hmm. know, and I think that, you know, getting to the idea that how we change over time, that I think a lot of that is the product of maturity, yeah. you know, that people have been around with, with things for a long time. It's like the people that are bragging about getting, you know, laid are probably not the 50 year olds. They're probably the pimple face kids, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> right. Exactly. 
So, so talking about routines and rituals, do you have certain routines and rituals that you use to get yourself into the writing mindset and to uh, transform from, you know, the everyday into the storyteller mode? Yeah, I do. I have some that are very simple and not that exotic. And then I have another big one that I'll, that I'll mention. Um, I usually use music. A lot of, a lot of times my, uh, the stories pop up kind of like, here I am. I want you to write about me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like I was sitting down and I said, hmm, I want to write a story today. You know, yeah. I think it'll be about this. It's, they, it pretty much comes and tells me, hi, I want to be written now. Right. So that happens. And a lot of times that happens with music. There's a lot of different, I like dark ambient music and mm-hmm. all of that jazz. And so a lot of that just creates through magic. I have a sensitivity to just snapping into spaces and states, mm-hmm. you know, not weird out of control or anything, but, you know, coming into, <laughs> right. you know, um, different kinds of states that create that. What happened a year and a half ago that was kind of an interesting thing is I had been winding down on uh, writing the kind of stories I was writing and I wanted to figure out something new. And I had a about a sciatica. And it was so horrible that I was in bed for five months and wow. I did not take, I didn't take any pain pills or anything like that at all. It was just, you know, aspirin. Well, what happened? And it was fantastic. It was amazing. I started hallucinating obviously because of the constant continual pain. Yeah. And I tell, I tell people now that it was the coolest thing that ever happened to me because it was like I was laying there watching these stories roll out of me. I had seven stories come out of that. Wow. Complete. I mean, just complete. Like I was listening to them being dictated and I already sold those stories. So like, I wouldn't want to do that again. I feel like been there, done that, got the (laughs) t-shirt, but it was, it was an amazing thing, not only because of what I got out of it, but to see how the mind and the brain works when, uh, when under severe stress, physical stress or mental stress or, whatever kind of stress. So it was a very interesting learning experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, there's a, a long tradition of that in uh, native American practice where, you know, oh. using pain to, to transcend the curtain. And, uh, Oh yeah. That's, that's very interesting that that's kind of the way you got yourself back into writing and everything. huh? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And it was, and like I said, it was completely different because what I have done since then is nothing at all. Like what I did before that at yeah. any point in my life. So, well, what advice pain, aside from having sciatica? <laughs> what advice aside from having sciatica would you have for aspiring and new writers that you know feel the urge to write and want to write? You know, I think it's like it's, it's it's almost cliche, and every single person I've ever heard ask this question says the same thing, and it's just just keep writing and writing and writing. And I think that in the in the process of writing as much as possible, you will find out what it is that turns you on. It's like, I, you know, a lot of times I probably sound stupid or silly, but I use sex a lot of times as a metaphor for all of these things because they they all work kind of the same way. And through, competent, you know, um, constantly uh, trying and exploring and feeling things out and, and exploring different parts of the self and different ideas and different voices. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a very different voice of dear cousin Gavin than there is of the, uh, you know, the soldier of fortune in Renaissance uh, Venice, mm-hmm. you know, who's working for a lord, you know, I mean, there's all these. So I think that's an important thing is just trying everything out and finding out what fits and what you like. And there's, and even though, even though you find out what, what you fit and what you like, 
that doesn't that doesn't you know tie you to that. So I mean, I think it's just a matter of have fun with things. You yeah, know? Like explore. Think, yeah, I mean, I've I've written several stories in pure Shakespearean English that Shakespearean English professors tell me are amazing. And not to say pat myself on the back, but I just shows you what you can do when you sink your brain yeah. deeply into an, into a uh, a space. And I think another thing is research. You know, a lot of the books that I read and a lot of things I read are research about things I know nothing about. You know, like I'm an older white woman. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had a lot of bizarre experiences, but I would never want to cons- confine myself to writing only about what I know. Right. And the only way I can write about something I don't know, if I can't actually go and live it, is to research the hell out of it and get the feel of it and just sink it into my bones. So I think that's, you know, I think anybody could benefit for, for that for that kind of uh practice. Yeah. Know? I mean, there's, I, I don't know the exact quote, but I know that's one of the things that Stephen King has said uh, a number of times is that if you don't have time to read, you don't have time to write. You oh, have absolutely. to fill the well, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, there's an interesting quote. There's a, there's a, a Turkish author. He's won a Nobel prize and his name is Oren Palmik. And I don't know if you've ever, if you've heard of him, he's written some of the most fabulous uh, novels today. Mm-hmm. And He's also a very generous writer because he gives you hints about how to write that you never hear from anybody else. And in his books, he talks about hundreds and hundreds of topics in depth that obviously he must have gone and read five or six books on that topic. Hmm. And he said, you know, why not? Give yourself permission to do whatever you want to do to write about whatever you want, you know. And he's the same thing. I mean, I think that's something that European writers have is that they read more broadly than a lot of a lot of people do today, and I think that that shows in, in their work. So what do you have yeah. coming up in the future? What's, uh, what can folks be looking for to, to, to be on their radar? Well, I have a few things. I have Actually, I have eight things coming out this year. Awesome. Uh, but um, I think that uh, probably I have one thing coming up in uh, Singularity Magazine, which is called Something in the Water. And that's the what I was talking about, which is the soldier of fortune mm-hmm. who has gotten um, – and the, the egg of an evil gin that he's bringing back to one of the lords of Venice for his use. And it's a very, um, very atmospheric sort of piece. Um, and then I have uh, something called Twice Per Annum, which is a very fussy, stodgy little English piece about an old man and his ghost daughter that in- occupy a huge um ancestral mansion and then i have another piece um that come that's coming out in ink stains anthology this month and then another piece uh i'm just giving some that are just all very different from one another mm-hmm. in surreal nightmare anthology is uh having a piece uh called some thoughts on the blind owl and the blind owl is a is a short book written uh by a an iranian author um sadeg hadayat and he died in 1951 by suicide. And he was a vegetarian and an occultist and a red, a, a, an Iranian writer that lived and died in Iran and wrote The Blind Owl that was a compendium of some of the most bizarre occult imagery that I've ever read. What was interesting about The Blind Owl is that uh, shortly, very shortly after it was written, he committed suicide. 
and there was a huge rash of suicides on the campuses of Iranian universities following his suicide over that book. I was very, very taken with uh, The Blind Owl and ended up writing a three-piece, um, a little introductory piece and then a long conversation with Hedayat uh, that covers all of the quest question and answer points of the occult journey as it's laid out in that in the blind owl hmm. i mean it's definitely a not for everybody sort of uh title but anybody that's interested in the occult or any of those kind of themes would and even if they don't like my story they should find out about uh sadeg hadayat and read the blind owl awesome so where can folks find your work and connect with you where are the best places to reach out uh, probably Facebook, okay. Aaron Fleck at Facebook right now. I mean, I'm going to be, I, I have to start putting this stuff in a more organized public <laughs> way, but then I'm one of those introvert types, you know. Yeah. So um, that's still happening, but those those titles I mentioned, and uh, there's a, a couple from last year that are how anybody that's interested can just reach out to me on Facebook and I'd be happy to direct them um, where they might want to go. Excellent. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was performed by Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was performed by Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme was written by Anthony Rosick and performed by Novus. This episode of the Wicked Library featured a custom score by Nico Vitaze. All incidental music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. You can check the show notes for titles and credits. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, NinthStory.com. Producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive producer and creator, Nelson W. Piles. Music director, Nico Vitaze. Art director, Stephen Matico. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 622. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for Gavin to watch you. <laughs>